Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday. It's now the nine days. I uh, just got back in the middle of the night from Teaneck. I want to thank the Adlers and everybody else there who was the hosts and reception committee. And uh, I stay every year with Jonathan and Leah. Um, I did have the pleasure of meeting Dr. Sassone, who came to us after lunch. And uh, it's interesting. And he's a farty, and it turns out he's friends of today's, um, today's uh, sponsor. Because I'm going to talk about something now. For uh, my good friend uh, Rabbi Yosef Kasorla, who's in in uh, Boca, <coughs> who wrote this sponsor, and he wanted me to talk about two halachic themes, <coughs> but that doesn't lend itself to a podcast. That's more, like I say, for a lecture or something. But, although they're interesting in Italy, Tommy Adam and, and the Mikva and Rovigo, uh, two interesting topics. But uh, instead, so I started thinking myself this morning. What could I do Sephardic style? Because Rabbi Kasorla is uh, super Sephardic. By that I mean he's actually in Spanish. By that I mean, as I'll tell you in a second, I've said before also that he's from the Ottoman Empire where the real Sephardim speaking Ladino settled. Um, but before I proceed, I just want to acknowledge that he's dedicating this, as he writes, number one, to his amazing wife, Shoshana, who encourages my learning. Uh, well, naturally, she's Ashkenazim, mean, you know. <laughs> uh, number two, Rabbi Josh Flug, who I also know I met once in, in uh, Boca, who's so important. And to my boyhood friend, Dr. Jaker Milner, for his love of learning. I think he was one of the three guys with Dobie Elman the other day. Uh, but anyway, thank you, Rabbi Casarola. And he mentioned to me uh, a new book that came out from the Teaneck Rabbi, Rabbi Jachter, who is an Ashkenaz rabbi in a Sephardic synagogue, and apparently he's trying to explain the Yankees to the Orioles and the Orioles to the Yankees, and he was kind enough to send it to me in the mail, Rabbi Kasserola was. This is a new book by Rabbi Jachter. I like his books called Bridging Traditions, Demystifying Differences Between Sephardic and Ashkenazic Jews. And it seems to be, <clears throat> just got in the mail, like a sort of an encyclopedia, or a digest of Chalukim, between Ashkenaz and Sephardic, and what the background is, which is really uh, very, very interesting. I hope to, to take a look at it. It's first of all, in connection with the three weeks, and then with other stuff as well. <coughs> okay. Now, um, Rabbi Kasurla is, as I say, real Sephardic, and his family's from the Balkans, which is where the uh, guys really, um, really wanted to... Uh, um, let's put it this way, that's the real Spanish-speaking uh, Jews were located. It's a monastery, which probably you never heard of, and that's an important community smacking the belly button of the Balkans in Macedonia. And that's where these Jews in the Ottoman Empire ended up migrating, although in each case, first came Spanish, then came another different group, then came Italian Jews, then came Portuguese. It's a mishmash. But the culture was super um, Sephardic. 
But in the course of writing back and forth, Rabbi Kasserola told me he had a grandfather, great-grandfather, who ended up coming to this country to go to Rochester because there was a Sephardic community, genuine Sephardim, in Rochester, which I've heard of. And he apparently was the first Chacham there or something like that. So this set me thinking, in general, about Sephardim and Ashkenazim, especially in this country in early America. So I'm going to meander a little bit <coughs> today with his permission and uh, give a little thoughts of Sephardim and Ashkenazim, a few aspects how they relate to each other, plus or minus, uh, which is an interesting up and down story, at least in my opinion. That's all I can ever share. If you went back long ago, a thousand years ago, the big community was the Sephardim and the little community was the Ashkenaz. Spain was conquered by the Arabs in the 700s. And after the Arabs took it over, a ton of Jews poured into the country as immigrants. Somewhat similar, I mean, not the same proportions, but uh, actually the same proportions, not the same absolute numbers, as what happened in America in the late 1800s, early 1900s. People heard it's a good economy, it's a good situation, and Jews from the guns of moved here. That's where you get a large number of Sephardim. Most of them are not from pre-Arab conquest. You can always find a few, of course, what they call the Visigothic era. But the Sephardim were immigrants in the 700s, 800s, and so forth. And the Spanish Peninsula, Iberian Peninsula, had a ton of Christians. The Arabs were always, the Muslims were always very suspicious of the Christians, properly so. Uh, you know, they shouldn't uprise against them and all that stuff. And the Jews were no threat to the Arabs whatsoever, right? So the Arabs were happy to invite Jews to immigrate, the Muslim authorities, because the Jews are not going to side with the Christians because the Christians used to treat them worse than the Muslims did. By that I mean, prior to the Muslim conquest in 712, the Jews had been tortured and persecuted by the Christians in Spain, the Visigoths. And so... When the Muslims ruled it, the Jewish situation was much better, and for various reasons. And um, therefore, there was no incentive whatsoever for the Jews to want to help the Christians against the Muslims. They're Adraba. Plus, they have a lot more in common with Islam, you know, with the Arabic way of thinking than with the Christian way of thinking. And for these and other reasons, just imagine Spain, the Spanish Peninsula, as a place where. Um, Imagine a place where a lot of immigrants are coming in all the time. And consequently, the Jewish population is mom's growing. Just like in America, you know, if you went back in 1812, there are probably like five, 6,000 Jews in the whole country. You come in 1912, it's millions. So that's what happened in Spain. Mutatis mutandis. No, it's not those kind of numbers. But tens of thousands, eventually, population reached hundreds of thousands. It was nothing like that anywhere else in the Jewish world. You know what I'm saying? The Ashkenaz was a few thousand in northern France and western Germany. Garnished. The Ashkenaz didn't have a whole bunch of people immigrating in there. In the Christian countries, by contrast to the Muslim-ruled countries, especially Spain being a real exception, it's not shot they allowed the Jews in and said, come on in all you want. They allowed very few in, and even then under special conditions, and you had to kiss their rear end, and you had to go and promise some taxes, and this, and that, and the other. It was a tough situation. You understand? They're always living by the you know, edge of the sword, the Ashkenaz. So don't be surprised if you go back to the 
9, 10, 11, 12 hundreds, the Sephardim always looked down on the Ashkenaz, and the Sephardic Gedolim looked down for a long time on a lot of the Ashkenaz Gedolim in the famous expression, Kol Torah Sarfosa Hashvech Lashbosa. All the Torah friends you can throw in the garbage can. It's no good. Chutzmi Pashen Dosa, with the exception of Rashi. Okay? So this is, that's how the relationship started out with However, over the course of time, several things happened. First of all, stuff went south in Spain, and persecution began. First, the Muslims went nuts on them, the Almohad times in the 1100s. And suffice it to say, the Spanish Jews who survived ran away to the north of Spain where they had Christians, and they kind of lost their kesher with the other Oriental Jews, with the Eidot Mizrach. Isn't that interesting, I'm telling you? They were Sephardim, but they're not connected anymore with the Eidot Mizrach because they're no longer part of the Arab world, they're part of the Christian world, the world of the Kingdom of Castile and Aragon. They did continue to speak Arabic, interestingly, but now they're living in a Christian milieu. And the Christians went on to conquer 95% of Spain anyway, by the 1200s, Mamish 95, 96% of Spain. And so that was the reality. So the Sephardim themselves underwent a certain transformation, although they still remained by far the largest population. However, they were no longer saying, Taurus Sarfasa Hashech Lashbosag, because the persecutions of the Almohads and the fact that everybody had to move created an environment in which all of a sudden, you know, since they're part of the Christian world, the main place in the Christian world where there's the Mokum Torahs is Ashkenaz. So Sephardim started going to learn the Ashkenazic Yeshivas. First Rabbeinu Yonah, Garona, and others. And Ramban had Ashkenazic teachers. It's just an interesting process. And so therefore, you end up with a situation in which numerically the Sephardim are much bigger. Much. But intellectually... The Sephardim are starting to say, you know, the Ashkenaz talk are the main gedolim. It's just interesting. Because if you go and learn in those yeshivas, you come back with the Ashkenazic methodology, what you and I call Tosfus, and all the big hitters of the Sephardi world in the second half of the Middle Ages were knockoffs of the Balitosis. You know, that uh, murderer's row of Rabbeinu Yonah, then Ramban, then Rajwa, then Ritva, then Ran, then Nemuki Yosef, Chasek all those guys, you know, they're, they're, they're not, uh, Rivosh, they're all, you know, imitating the Ashkenaz. This is called Chedushim, right? They don't say the exact same terrors necessarily, that's what a Lamda Shekles is about, but nevertheless, the methodology was there. And then, things changed subtly over a long period of time. Numerically, first of all, this huge community of Sephardim took a big hit in 1391, and half the population converted, or killed or converted. So right off the bat, even though they're still huge, but 50% of the population converted, the Jews, or died out Kiddush Hashem, usually they converted. So that already cut the numbers down. Even with those numbers cut down, they still outnumbered Ashkenaz. However, in 1492, same thing happened again. In 1492, 50% of the Sephardim 
converted. They stayed behind. They didn't leave. Only the Sephardim Torim, you know, only the Frumis left. And so you're basically talking about a huge Sephardic community, which over 100 years takes a 75% hit in numbers. You see what I'm saying? And I would say that the Sephardim never recovered because they moved primarily to the Middle East, to the Ottoman Empire, which at that time was humongous. It was a third of Europe. You know what I said? It was up to Hungary. In 1525, they captured Hungary. With the best. Uh, so it's a third of Europe. And and also uh, uh, the whole Middle East. In other words, you and I call Turkey, Iraq, Syria, Israel, Jordan, Egypt, and so forth. Down to Arabia. So it's very big. Uh, now when the Sephardim moved there, they imperialized the locals. So if there were Romanio Jews, for example, in Greece, in monastery in those kind of places, the Kassorlas of the world imperialized them. They Sephardiized them. They said, look here, we are the uh, big Talmud around here. And from now on, we're going to do things this way. And they Sephardiized them. Right? Like I said in Teaneck the other day, he's not going to tell me the Iranians are Sephardim. They come from Spain. But they got Sephardiized. Okay? And I would say cultural imperialism is in the DNA of the Sephardim, if they could. Um, Vadioso, remember, said, what's the problem with the Ethiopian Jews? So just let them talk and no subscribe. What the heck did the Ethiopian Jews got to do with Sephardim? You see what I'm saying? It's imperialism. But okay, fine. Uh, it's okay with me. Now, um, that means, as far as I can tell, the Sephardi population never really increased after that, which is interesting. So I just told you a story. It got big in the 7, 8, 9, 10 hundreds. It started to go down because of these artificial blows in 1391 and 1492. And they didn't really recover. What they did was they, if I can use this terminology, they sort of replenished their numbers by converting the non-Sephardim to Sephardim. You know, Syria, Iraq, Turkey, Egypt, and so forth. They supplemented their numbers that way. But even when they did that, it doesn't seem to me, as far as I can tell, I'm not the world's expert on this, but there are people no less, that these Sephardim never really increased in numbers. <clears throat> they just maintained a large presence because the original Spanish Jews either married the locals or imperialized them. And so the communities eventually went Sephardic. You know, broadly speaking, eventually went Sephardic. When I say Sephardic, I mean Sephardi. Okay? Meanwhile, the Ashkenaz, who were very small in France, and were kicked out of France and ended up in Germany, and they were small in Germany. And then, at the same time, after 1492, the Ashkenaz ended up, for the most part, in Poland, the great kingdom of Poland that no longer exists. As I say endlessly, Poland at that time was equal to Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, Estonia, and Poland. And there, the Ashkenaz, for some reason or another, had a baby boom. Nobody ever knows exactly why, because the public health was lousy and all over the place. But for some reason, they had a baby boob. And this baby boob continued. This wave of fertility continued. It's very interesting. In the 1500s, the 1600s, the 1700s, the 1800s, into the early 1900s. It looks like it was not, it was on the, you know, leveling off and declining just before Hitler. That's the, it's very interesting. So as I've said many times, 
if you want to see something remarkable in recent memory, when we talk about the Jewish population of the world in the 1830s, you can Google it, you'll look, you'll see yourself. The Jewish population world was something like 3 million. And 100 years later, in the 1930s, it was like 16 million. Something like that. A little more. Notice there's a five-fold increase, 500% increase in a century. That's nuts. You see? And it did not happen from the Sephardim. happened from the Ashkenaz, the Eastern European Ashkenaz. And it's even when more and more of the Eastern European Ashkenaz moved to West. And when they West, the fertility rates went down. So this is just something very interesting, you see? And what I'm saying is, what I'm pointing out is, the difference of the, the balance of power, so to speak, shift in favor of Ashkenaz by, by means of numerical, yeah? Now, it wasn't only numerical. In addition to having the large numbers, the Ashkenazi culture pr- produced a very firm situation. And so we can make big Malcolm Torah, although if you ask me, Who's bigger? You know, the Ashkenazi Gedolim or the Sephardi Gedolim? Eh, what kind of an argument? You know, it's a, that's hard to say. You know, the, the average audience listening to this will say the Ashkenaz because they're Ashkenazo-centric. They don't know who the big Sephardi guys were. They're the big hitters, but you just never heard of them, most people. But, um, but there's no question that the Ashkenaz, along with their baby boom, were able to develop a much wider level of, I'll use a modern word, yeshivaism. Either yeshivas or learning in shoals, a, a much wider network of that sort of thing than the Sephardim did, which is just interesting. Okay? The Ashkenaz also picked up the modernity with the Sephardim, but that's what happened. Okay? So the I would say the, the shift in uh, the balance, uh, certainly the level of numbers, shifted in favor of the Ashkenaz. And the Ashkenaz became, in the modern era, the politically active ones when the Sephardim were not. If you talk about everything connected with, um, number one, the push of the Jews to get emancipation, number two, the push of the Jews to get their own country, it's an Ashkenazic endeavor primarily. Okay, uh, You don't find big Sephardim in the Ottoman Empire, and they had rich and powerful guys, Making any move on a cholesterol type level, not not that I know of, okay, it's, it's still very local, you see, and uh, it's interesting. Even the Turkish Empire, which gave the Jews some degree of civil rights in the late 1830s, did so under Europe under Ashkenaz pressure, you see. So it's a strange kind of a shift back and forth, as it were. Um, it's just interesting to me. Now. <laughs> this Sephardim, as I think everybody knows, developed along two lines, which was the regular Sephardim and then the Spanish-Portuguese Jews. The Spanish-Portuguese Jews were, of course, all these Murano types that were born Goyim, born Catholic. At least that's their identity back in Spain and Portugal. And secretly, they want to be Jewish. And the ones I'm talking about got out, you know, when they were able to, they escaped the Inquisition like the Scarlet Pimpernel. The ones who did not escape the Inquisition were Taka burned. Plenty of them. And the Sephardim, therefore, were Sephardi by heritage and by blood, but they're very different than the Sephardim that ended up like the Kasorlas, these other guys, 
in the Ottoman Turkish Empire. They were much more westernized because they had grown up in a western society, Dahinu, Spain, and Portugal. So even when they ran away, and they ended up in places like uh, London and uh, Bordeaux and Amsterdam and Hamburg and those kind of places, and Livorno, but they already were, even when they came out of the closet and embraced Judaism, which they did, they still retained their western clothing and their western style and way of thinking, even, I would say. They're very westernized. Now, here's the funny part. So I'm talking about a process that starts really in the 1600s, if you want to get down to it. That's when this really takes flesh and form. Around the year 1600. Uh, so you have Jews who are Sephardim. I'm talking about the Portuguese Jews, the Spanish-Portuguese Jews. That's the ones I'm speaking about. Western. And they look more European, and therefore, from the Gaish point of view, they look a lot more cleaner and presentable. From the Gaish point of view, especially in those centuries, they see an Ashkenaz Jews, and eh, the guy's got a beard, his hair's all over the place, his clothing is unusual, you know, he looks uh, strange, out of fashion, you know, like that. Okay? It's, it's weird. And especially if they would look, for example, at a Polish Jew. In Poland, that kind of dress was normal. Outside of Poland, nobody dressed like that. I'm talking about even the game. And so, they're developed in the 16, especially 1700s, the idea among many Ashkenazim that the Spanish-Portuguese Jews are superior in the fact that they are Jewish, but they've somehow or other negotiated the westernization process better. They look more respectable and less of a chilashan. This is called by historians the Sephardi mystique. You understand? And eventually it spread with the Haskalah, which intensified this set of feelings, you know, in the late 1700s and, and during the 1800s. The Sephardi mystique. And then the idea would go like this. The Ashkenaz is all tzimisht. It's a Yiddish, which is not a language, they said. They dress funny. They talk funny. They act very un-European. Mashen came these Jews in Amsterdam and London and places like that. Again, they are Shomer Shabbos and they are keeping kosher, but they dress normal, very respectable. You see, it's that way of looking. It's a certain inferiority complex, but it doesn't matter. This is a widespread area. Plus, you end up going like this. The Sephardim come from a tradition like the Rambam and people like that. They're very rational. The guy had a college education. He had an MD, had a PhD. So in other words, they were respectable in the sense that the Rambam, like the Rambam, they're consumers of European culture. The Ashkenaz don't even know about that. So you can say, from a very firm perspective, it's good not to know about all that stuff. But from a other perspective, you say, you don't know, therefore your opinion doesn't count because you're criticizing something from an obscurantist point of view. And you're just saying like this, I don't know, so therefore it's not important. But that's not a truism. Just because you don't know something doesn't mean it's not important. It just means you don't know it. And so you see how the the, the, the balance again shifts and people start to look at the Sephardim, I mean the Western Sephardim, like they're the Hatsi Tatsis. Um, it's just an interesting business. Which brings us to the United States of America. Because the first Jews that came over here in the colonial times were indeed 
these uh, these uh, Portuguese Jews. I think everybody knows that. And they were able to integrate into America fairly successfully, largely due to the fact that they didn't look funny. That they dressed like the other Americans. And they uh, kind of blended in. They picked up the lingo real fast. So they didn't talk among themselves. The, the Portuguese Jews don't talk no Ladino. Ladino is like a Yiddish. It's a mishmash from the linguistic point of view. They spoke Spanish. They spoke Portuguese. And they, when they moved to Holland, they picked up Dutch. If they moved to England or New York or Charleston, they pick up English. You see? That was that attitude of Portuguese Jews. So the word Sephardi can mean a lot of different things depending on when and where. Now, the Jews, therefore, in the 16, especially 1700s in this country, in the USA, before it was the USA, so they were able to establish um, Sephardi synagogues, Kehilo, whatever, small, um, in the 13 colonies in different places. And even though they were a very small number, when the Ashkenazim would move over here, and I would say almost from day one or day two, Ashkenazi Jews from Poland, Germany, Holland, place like that, Ashkenaz, were among the majority of the Jews that came to over here in the colonial times. You hear what I said? But the diffus of the Sephardim was already there. <clears throat> and if I was a Jew emigrating from Germany, let's say, for example, in 1750, and I ended up in, in New York <clears throat> or someplace like that, the shul in town is the Sephardi shul, it's Portuguese, but it's no Sephardi. Okay, it is. It even has some of the Rizal stuff in it <clears throat> by this time. It's Nusuk Sfarad. Um, the style of Tefillah and all that is the Sephardi style, which either like it or you don't. It's intriguing if you're not Sephardi to have, I find it intriguing, to have the Chazan recite the whole Tefillah from beginning to end. It does all the work for you, plus, of course, the Balkari and all the rest of it. Uh, but that came to be seen as the proper and more dignified way to run services, rather than everybody should daven out loud to themselves, you know, like the Ashkenaz. A Spidey once told me in Seattle, he says, the Ashkenaz daven is like the racetrack, you know, bang, they're off. <laughs> All the horses are running at the same time, same direction, but not at the same time. Uh, there's a different sensibility. And always, these Litvaks, these Yekis, these Dutch, and they would come to New York or Charleston or wherever, Savannah, they would say, I guess, I'm converting to Sephardiism. This is a show. I'm not going to start another show. There's not even 10 people like me. And whatever. I like this. You want to know why? From the point of view of my new American neighbors, this Sephardi way of running things is more dignified. It's more Western. You get it? Now, there was a show Torah meaning the synagogues were committed to what you and I today would call Orthodox Judaism. It was schwach and sense they have learned with very few people. But, comma, comma, partly, all the Ashkenaz Jews, they came over here, felt that the model that they saw in the Sephardi system of dominating and running a kill, all the rest of it, is superior to what they remember from back home. This is very interesting. And that's the reason that this country was, in terms of its religious orientation, Sephardic in the time of George Washington well afterwards until about the 1820s or so, 1830s, um, because when the Ashkenaz Jews came over here, 
they usually you know just blended into the local community you see now eventually that changed and the german jews started to feel their own oats and all the rest of it but nevertheless the sephardi style you know had impressed them and the point i want to make is you see the sephardi were able to this spanish portuguese jews were able to create that style without having a microphone to use modern terminology you see that was without having to have an organ or any other things that, that were part, actually, of a church service. Which, as you know, the Ashkenaz, when they tried to do this, they entered with Reform Judaism and they introduced all this other stuff. The Safaradim didn't f find it necessary to go and change the Sidur and go and change the Tefillah. Just to, having it in that style and having the rabbi look like a normal American, if you ever look at those pictures, um, that is what people were striving for. And today, there's a different sensibility out there. I'm talking about at that time. And therefore, there was a Sephardic cultural superiority, even though it was not deserved. And when I say it was not deserved, it's not shot that they were great Talmud Chachamim, they're Hasidim Uprushim, anything like that. They weren't really religious so much, to be perfectly honest. This, the, the, the Portuguese Jews came to this country. They weren't reformed, but you know, Yiddish guy was pretty doggone schwach. For a whole bunch of reasons. After all, there are only two, three thousand Jews in the whole country. The whole country. And, uh, you know, uh, there wasn't much really going on in terms of lively Yiddishkeit. And even in those communities that they set up, if you get down and dirty to it, the majority of the people actually were by blood, were Ashkenazi. So it was a screwball situation in this country in the early years. Uh, and because what I just described the Sephardim were considered the superior. This is definitely true. Um, this is definitely true, uh, for example, like in London and places like that, where, you know, the Sephardim developed a kind of a self-image, which was all baloney, uh, in which they come from a superior stock, and the Ashkenazi come from the riffraff. I'm serious. The Tedescos, they call them. You'll see in London, Amsterdam to some extent, Sephardim, you know, told the Goyim, listen, there are two types of Jews out there, us and the riffraff. So, you know, Sephardim you can let into your country club uh, because we're dignified and normal. And not only that, we come from the upper classes, the better stock of ancient Jewry. The Ashkenazim come from the dregs. This is what they put out there. You understand? And the Sephardim have always had a certain amount of self-baloney. Um, you'll see, you know, the Bible knows, oh, we come from Bais Rishon, and, you know, we'll go back to Tzikyo's time, and there's no truth to that, but, you know, they, they, they had this self-image. Uh, and the result was, for many years in this country, and in Great Britain and places like that, the Sephardim was considered more Khashiv in terms of... Uh, they wouldn't let you marry with Ashkenaz usually. Now that's in England, not in this country. Nobody had those kind of things in this country because there was nobody to marry. The number one problem in America was there were no Jewish girls or no Jewish guys. You understand? Know it was it's really tough, um, which is why a lot of people intermarried. And if they married wives, sometimes they converted them, whatever that means. I mean, if you're going to get technical on me, you get three people that can convert them. Uh, any three people, Ramos says. Uh, but that's what you ended up with. And a lot of people, the woman just never bothered to convert. 
or vice versa. This was the real big problem. What was the number one halachic shayla in the 13 colonies and afterwards? You know, can you bury the non-Jewish spouse in the Jewish cemetery? I mean, that's, that's tough. That's tough times. Uh, anyway, whatever the case is, it shifted that way. But then came a ton of, a, a ton, I mean, a, a tidal wave of Ashkenazic Jews pouring into this country. And then the tone shifted. You see? And then the tone shifted. And so it's it's always going like waves back and forth, you know, up and down. Uh, because then the main machers in world Jewish affairs were the Ashkenaz. Nobody else even thought of world Jewish affairs other than the Ashkenaz. So the people that started proto-Zionism and then the Chovetzion and then the Zionism, Zionism, and even the opposition, principled opposition to Zionism, like the Agoda, is all Ashkenaz. The Sephardim weren't doing this. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're just keeping in their Dalai which is an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing. Perhaps because they weren't in free countries, you know, which is very possible. But you don't even find an attempt that I can think of as I'm speaking over here. And so you end up with the situation that the Ashkenaz moved to front and center. And very faithfully, the Ashkenaz became the main ones who set up the framework for the modern state of Israel, the Yeshuv, as they call it. Uh, it's true that when the British made the mandate, they made an Ashkenaz chief rabbi and Sephardi chief rabbi. But the chief rabbi is a joke. The real power is what they call the Zionist agency and what eventually they made the Knesset. Uh, I'm talking about the pre-state Knesset. They had such a thing, Asifat Nivcharim. And then the Knesset itself, this is why we had all this racism when Israel became a state in '48, because all the machers, 99.9% were Ashkenaz, and when they brought in what we would call a Dota Mizrach, which include a lot of Sephardim, either literally Sephardim or Sephardi imperialized, uh, they were treated in a very racist fashion. And this becomes one of the defining fissures in modern Israeli politics. It's kind of like more important than almost anything else. And even today hasn't really changed. So uh, it's very interesting when you consider, at least to me, when you consider these two teams, the Orioles and the Yankees, as I call them, you know, sometimes one is up, sometimes the other one's up. You don't really find both up in the same way at the same time. Uh, on the other hand, the Sephardim, are, uh, especially in Israel, I think are definitely becoming majority. I think. Uh and this will eventually reflect itself in political system. And the question will become, will it reflect itself in other ways also? Let me put it this way. If you want to get down to dirty politics, if they can elect enough people, they'll give more money to their yeshiva's institutions than the Ashkenazi get for theirs. I don't blame them. So uh, we don't know what the 21st century has in mind when it comes to these sorts of things. Uh, but I would say in general... Because the Ashkenaz underwent the particular development that they did, which is with modernity and, you know, uh, all these uh, non-from things, the Ashkenaz had to develop organically kind of countermeasures in a way that Sephardim didn't. And if you're Hasidic, that's one, but if you're not Hasidic, then it's the yeshivas. And so the Sephardim now are copying the that yeshiva model. So I just painted a picture, tried to of like a seesaw, right? 
which I think is a very interesting one. Uh, and we don't know what the future exactly is like, but it's, um, it's uh, you know, a seesaw can be an exercise in futility or it can be something that's uh, fruitful and productive. Uh, I hope it's the latter. Anyway, that's just a few thoughts and a rambling that I want to do today in honor of the subject. And uh, I want to thank again Rabbi Kassarul and all the others uh, for sponsoring. And we're now going to get down to the nine days. Of course, Sephardim don't have the nine days this year at all. Right? According to Vadios, if you, got, you get out, you're not Jack, you get, get out scot-free. You have no restrictions whatsoever because it's an infant and all that. I think I'm right. Isn't that what Vadios is? I believe so. And uh, so it's a free ride. So maybe all my Ashkenazic friends are going to convert to Sephardi this year, you know, for a week. Uh, that would be an example of opportunism, which is not uh, ever absent uh, from the Jewish agenda, for better or worse. And uh, anyway, with that happy thought, I bid you a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.